0: Welcome to Thriving Room. Geneviève Lévy and I first met because we both spoke at a conference put on by an organization called Ada's List, which is a place for professional women and non-binary people who work in the technology sector to connect and make change. She is the principal founder and CEO of AgriLedger. AgriLedger enables trust, transparency, and traceability through blockchain across the agricultural supply chain. Genevieve led a collaboration with Haiti's Ministry of Commerce and Industry to deliver a distributed ledger technology pilot sponsored by the World Bank. The project went live in May 2020, allowing Haitian fruit farmers and consumers to reap the benefits of fairer prices and improved food security. I'm excited to bring this episode to you today, right on the heels of a conversation that Jill Malandrino, who covers global markets at NASDAq had with Genevieve. Our first time having a guest in Africa specifically Kinshasa while we are recording welcome Thank you thank you so much for having me
1: yeah I'm in Kinshasa and it's a fun uh, I'm actually here for a project where it is I would say probably a culmination of my dreams because I've always been intrigued and for the last 10 years I've been working in digital identity. Part of one of the roles I had was working with the Estonia government and Estonia basically put in digital identity because they were fearful of what the Russians would do to them. And here we are getting an opportunity because I do believe that digital identity provides you not only security but also uh, access to financial and legal services because It is recognizing you as a legal entity, as a living being. And this is something that we have been looking at for many years uh, in trying to, all the IGOs are looking at ways to provide people with an identity. And about a year ago, I was approached by a friend asking me if I would be interested in providing some support for this project in the DRC. Uh, Obviously, one of the things about DRC also is very close to me in my heart because my uncle, about 50 years ago, was a Fulbright in the Congo. Uh, And so my family, we've always known about the Congo. So I was like, yeah, sure. And looking at it, they were looking more at an ID um, mechanism where there would be IDs printed, very much almost like a passport but given to people. And this is for the teachers in uh, the DRC to be able to sectionize and to recognize the teachers because unfortunately they have about 20 to 40% fraud rate happening of people who are no longer living, not teaching, taking money, and they don't know how to control this. So with this, not only will they be able to actually pay, because the other... Parties are about 20 to 40% who are not getting paid because they can't get on the system. So, this will allow for people to be recognized, have their qualification well documented, and be able to get access to their pay. And you can start thinking of all the possible fintech ways and really lifting these individuals out of uh, the misery that some of them have. Because one of the things that happens is that on payday, teachers line up the street to go to the bank to cash the check. Now, if we think about it, it's not only the poor teacher which is standing in the heat, it's the poor student who's not getting taught because his teacher is online trying to get his paycheck. So there are a lot of opportunities. And um, I think that this is a great project because it really is about, that digitization uh, pathway, which creates not only the legal, as I said, but also the financial accessibility.
0: You have a great ability to recognize domino effects and see more than what is laid only in front of you. For instance, when you were talking about when the teachers are in line, that means that their students are losing out on instruction. Similarly, even the idea of having digital identity, not just to keep track of people, but to give access as the next step to different services. How do you think that you are able to see the picture fully in this way and to imagine the possibilities where some other people might struggle to?
1: It should be told is I'm a scientist. Uh, I've always been a scientist. And I'm also very curious So curiosity makes you seek answers. Sometimes they're not the right answers, but you are always like, I spend at least, I get up early in the morning. I don't like to talk early in the morning to people, but I spend the time reading. And I'm one of those serials people who are just like, well, start with something, quickly read it, jump to something else, and really look at the gamut Everything from technology to what's happening in, in the world, or sometimes it could be a scientific piece of paper. And it just fascinates me. And that way, it allows you to really be able to understand the different ways things can be approached. Because sometimes, let's like say, if we're in banking and finance, we are taught these are the steps that you take. But those are very different when, let's say, you're in manufacturing on how you look at a problem. So what I try to do is say, okay, this is the way normally we should do it. But is that the right answer? Should we be looking at something else? If it's the right answer, we continue with it. But we also also need to always weigh out. And in my career, I was always kind of like the dream catcher. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen like the Indian, um, it's like a a shaman has it and that's how he catches dreams. And for me, I always like to dream about the impossible and then try to make it possible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What is the most recent impossibility that you have made possible?
1: Oh, I I don't know that... I mean, things have. I think that lately things have been going well, which is unusual. Uh, Getting to Kinshasa was a feat, I have to say. I get into Jersey and I find out that um, the person who had arranged my flight forgot to tell me that I needed to have a PCR. Okay, so uh, Jersey says to me, "We're not going to put your luggage in the um, in the boot." to go straight because you don't have that PCR. You have enough time that you can go and try and get one. And you can then go over to Ethiopia and then to Kinshasa. I then find out that they forgot to get the visa for me. (laughs) So this is after I've jumped in the cab with two huge suitcases because I knew I was going to Kinshasa and then to New York. Uh, I, first I went to try and get the PCR at the airport. She says, no, you're not going to get this for another 48 hours. So she says, but by the way, there is, if you go to the Radisson's parking lot, there is something which will give it to you in less than two hours. And it's three times the price. I'm like, okay, fine. We're going to do that. We get there. Uh, I get the test. I go back to the airport and then find out that the visa has not been released because they went two hours too late, and there is no visa. So I said, okay. I just called the hotel, got myself into the Marriott, said, can I have a Marriott burger, and waited till the next day the visa came in. (laughs) But then I get to Kinshasa. There was a misunderstanding. They had paid the fees. The people at the visa didn't know that the fees had been paid and they would not let me go so throughout the whole thing the heat the tiredness I never said anything until I was in the visa office and these people were ignoring me and not letting me go and I finally said you're keeping me hostage here you need to do whatever it needs to be to let me out but you know um it was a I'd say, 48 hours, 72-hour f- uh, trip because I left my, my house in the morning of Friday and I didn't get into Kinshasa until Sunday late afternoon. But life goes on, you know. You just go, okay. And I think that's going to be the key to traveling going forward because it's, the stress is very heightened. The staff is, and you have to understand them, I don't know if the person who I'm having to serve has COVID and that if I catch it, I'm not going to get really sick and die from it. And when you start putting yourself into the shoes of these individuals who are in the front line, you then start understanding why it is key to just relax, and go with the flow, and not give them lip, unless they're keeping you hostage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a journey! Yeah,
1: and I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, no, uh, unfortunately, uh, there the timing could have been planned better if they had information. We believe that a week when the week after I came, like that week, was going to be the physical um, signing of the contract. It's by French law, so there has been certain information done, but there is a ceremonial signing, which then allows for things to really happen. And that has dragged for about four weeks now. And I it was acerbated with my um, let's say gourmandise, I forget uh, my, I forget what you call it in English. I discovered poke bowls here. And I was having poke bowl and poke bowl and poke bowl. And then I had one with salmon. And I ended up with absolutely worst case of uh, food poisoning. Had me down for six days and then has been kicking my ass ever since then also because it's created other issues in terms of my extra electrolytes. So my uh, visit to um, Kinshasa hasn't been what I expected. I was supposed to be in New York today. No New York, I'm still in Kinshasa. And so instead I'm going, okay, now that you're forcing me to be here, This is where I want to go for dinner. This is where I want to go for lunch. (laughs) Because the appetite is back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of how this experience has been different than what you imagined, you mentioned earlier that you had a personal connection to Kinshasa. How has your experience been different than what you learned back then?
1: I never had really, unfortunately, my... My mom and my uncle didn't speak very much about it. It was my mom's brother. Uh, he was a Fulbright in the 60s in the Congo. And if you remember, that was also when uh, there was the the coup uh, around that time and uh, Lumbada. There's a movie by Gregory Peck about it, which I saw. And it's one of the most uh, unsettling movies ever. And as such, because he was getting his PhD in um, social science, and that's why he came here. So I don't think he talked about it very much, because it was a time of very big disturbance in the Congo. I have to say, I have traveled to other places in Africa, like I've been to Nigeria, um, Ghana, South Africa, and I uh, I, I think that's it. And for me, I found the Congo is lush, it's green, and the the food is much more it must be the French parts to me, much more to my liking that than I did in Ghana and Nigeria. <laughs> and there is also a a lot of international cuisines. And the people are very friendly. And so for me, I didn't have expectations, but It reminds me a little bit of Haiti without being as restrictive as Haiti is. Because I was in Haiti in January and I think it broke my spirit. It actually did because that was where um, with the UK there was the lockdown where you had to be home and you couldn't go very far. But in Haiti... I couldn't go out and I couldn't get fed because nobody could bring me food. We actually were supposed to, a friend of mine came to take me to go out to dinner. And thank God he came in a few minutes earlier and came to get me because they started having this gang of motorcycles going down the street we were on with guns, shooting, and five people got killed. And that's what happens in Haiti. Well, here you don't feel that fear. You, you feel more sort of like maybe the crowds, because I don't want to be in crowds. But in Haiti, it was uh, disconcerting. And it explains some of the challenges I've had with the project, in that people don't believe that tomorrow is a better day. So if you don't believe tomorrow is a better day, you just kind of wait for it to happen and you figure it's going to be the same as the day before. In um, the DRC, I see people having more hope. But what's really crazy is how expensive it is. It is denominated in U.S. dollars. You can't go to a restaurant for two people and pay less than $75. And... It's not like you're getting that much food. I mean, a pizza is $25. Now, you go, how is someone local who is paid $500 a month able to afford this? The supermarkets are super expensive. I mean, wow. you go into market and you buy very little and you're coming out with $300.
0: Wow. How is it possible?
1: Everything is imported. And I was talking to someone and they said, this is a cross-Africa problem, which is exacerbated in uh, the Congo. Only 10% of the arable land is actually being cultivated.
0: 10%? No.
1: 10%. 10%. And this is across Africa. That was something I found staggering. And I asked someone... Now, somebody said that to me and I thought, eh. And I had the uh, ability, it was very funny, I was talking to a friend in Australia, Just, this is how things go, I was talking to a friend in Australia, she's part of this group I belong to which is called the Adriani, which is part of the Argonauts, uh, which is a, sort of like a cohort of people in very senior position and we provide support to each other and we meet once a month. Uh, virtually, and eventually we're supposed to meet together at some point in, around the world. And we have people in Australia, Singapore, China, Hong Kong, Germany, and then me all over the place <laughs> and our moderators in, uh, in the U.S. And so she told me that one of the group that she is on the board, which is the African uh, commerce, um, uh, what's it called, the uh, business commerce, The chairman was in Kinshasa, and he was leaving the next day. So she suggested, would I want to meet him? So I did. And it was so funny. The hotel lobby had maybe seven tables, and each table, I didn't didn't know until after, was waiting to speak to him. (laughs) He was holding court, and he repeated the same thing to me. Part of the challenge, though, is you need to first look at infrastructure. Uh, The infrastructure needs to be addressed. And infrastructure is not road only, it's also access to water. Without access to water, people will not be able to actually um, do the irrigation that is necessary. And in reality, that irrigation is more for them to have potable water that they can actually drink and not create any, and also encourage them not to use chemicals. So there are a plethora of projects going on, um, and I think some of them are also very opportunistic because the, the richness of this country, they have minerals, they have natural resources, they have oil, and they have three, not two, three seasons of growing. So it's just getting the people back into cultivation is really going to be the challenge that needs to be done.
0: And this goes into one of your areas of expertise around agriculture.
1: Yes. See, my expertise in agriculture is I become an expert at whichever fruit or commodity or item that you uh, tell me about, because what we do is we say we're agnostic to, so with AgriLedger, which is um, the software, um, I say software as a service or food tech application that we've created, it's really about taking a commodity, an item or something, and understanding how do you measure it how do you size it? How do you value it? How do you t- say if it's quality what how do you define quality? And then tracking it along its journey so that we can make sure that it has the right chain of custody because one of the biggest challenge in supply chains is not the complexity only of the supply chain, but being able to really look at the chain of custody and making sure that your items are not getting, exchange for something else or that there is contamination that happens uh, at some point and you have no idea of what uh, where it has been so that's one part of what we do but the other part which I think is even more important and it was like the aha moment for me because I at the beginning I was going yeah traceability is great and I understand an asset but I had always called it It was an asset creation, asset uh, escrow. So somebody, I'm giving you the right to carry it for me. An asset transfer, you're paying me cash for it. And an asset termination because it's no longer part of the available for anyone to have. And then when the project came in with the World Bank and they said, not only do we want you to track it, but we want you to make the payment, and that was in my sweet spot because I spent the last 25 years doing payment services, both in corporate and banking, and so this is something I understand very well and also that I think there are opportunities to innovate with, and so it was, oh, now that makes sense because not only can I see what is happening, but I can make sure that the person who's supposed to receive the money receives it and nobody else, and I don't have to have somebody be trusted to deliver. I'm going to use a bank. The bank is trusted. The bank has fiduciary responsibility, and they will make sure that the money reaches. So therefore, the individual who is due will receive his money, The way he should be so that was a real pivotal moment and I think that's really the you know I I don't think I speak well enough about it at times because that is the fintech piece and this is where for me I'm not interested in doing a token payment I don't see that this is something that's necessary because the person just wants to get paid They don't want to have an exposure to something else. So working with financial institutions, we can deliver on this. And I think that this is a role that the financial institution can themselves also uh, collaborate with because they are getting the money and it's sitting in their bank account and they're going to get float by it. It doesn't matter if it's an escrow, you have liquidity as a result in, in your balance sheet.
0: What has your experience been getting financial institutions to work with your company?
1: I have to say, we are working with a financial institution in Haiti. They've been reticent. They, they, they have done quite a bit of work. I'm not going to say they haven't done work, but they've been reticent to be a blockchain node. So they went with their business as usual, their BAU which is they have an SCP file that is sent to them and then they send back messages when the payment has been made. And that is not um, the ideal situation, but I kind of understand them because in a way they did want to, to put the resources that would be necessary to this and there would be a cost for them. Uh, in terms of training and in terms of uh, skilling up. The other organization that I wanted to do was to actually be able to do it from the U.S. And changing how it's done right now, the buyer pays the broker and the broker sends the money down. If we can have it to where the money goes to a centralized account with a bank, And that bank can then receive messages from the blockchain saying, These are the, uh, you know, you need to send this amount bulk to Haiti. Haiti will get their message, or you need to move that amount to the Haiti um, balance sheet. And these are the people that you need to pay in the US, which could be the broker, the transportation, or anything else which is needed, such as taxation. Then, we don't have any manual intervention, and even any fees that the bank themselves are supposed to get would be part of the calculation which is done by the blockchain. Um, because we are a startup, or let's say because of the place where we were, I think that two years ago, when I about a year and a half ago, when I started talking to the bank about that, uh, happens that my friend, leads the open banking and she was totally for it but the relationship people that i needed to talk to or the uh, business people thought that the risk to me as a small company was too high so what they decided uh to do was instead to um uh, to say to me we'll hold off but because part of it also was a uh, I wasn't getting it understood by um, the, the customer. they couldn't understand why I was trying to do that. It became a situation where it was best to let it go and then re, you know reevaluate it later. And we are now at the point where we can reevaluate it and we are also talking to, to the bank, the same bank to see if we can basically work with them
0: what are some reasons why that bank or other banks may be hesitant to be a blockchain node? Uh, Well,
1: this was before the OCC actually gave the right to the banks to be blockchain nodes. Uh, Remember the only bank which had their own blockchain for a while was JPMorgan Chase. And that was Quorum. And, uh, they actually sold it back to consensus. They had consensus um, um, build it for them, and then they sold it to consensus around about five or six months ago. But what happened is that when the Bahamas, about three months ago, announced about their CBDC, so Central Bank Digital Currency, the OCCs, which is the Office of the Currency uh, said that banks could now be nodes for uh, CBDCs or stablecoins. So you have a stablecoin, so there there are now three known um, CBDC. Um, You have the one in the Bahamas, the one in Eastern Caribbean Bank, the one in China, Then you have retail one, but um, no one else is really doing a wholesale one. The retail ones are the three that I spoke about. And now what has happened is because the Office of Currency has said that they can now become nodes, it's no longer a risk issue. Because we have to remember the banks are very skittish about taking certain risks because if that risk causes to where they default on a customer, they're the one who go to jail.
0: I'm very curious about the underlying agricultural life that your company is enabling. You mentioned about how, for instance, a commodity might get contaminated. Can you give an example of what is this type of contamination that can happen?
1: Let's say the, the fruits are supposed to be washed and they get dumped in water who has not been cleaned uh, or hasn't been disinfected the right way because the water is to clean it and to remove any sort of chemical or any sort of bacteria which might be on there. And imagine that the tank gets flush, it's not rinsed properly, and now you put another batch in and that batch gets infected. This is what has happened in the uh, lettuce uh, or that the washing is not good enough because what happened was that this runoff from, uh, from the ground, the sewer ground, which gets into the patch where the vegetables or the lettuce is being grown and you get listeria or you get E. coli that is not caught at the um, manufacturing or let's say the packing and that has resulted in two years. It happened this past year in 2020, and it happened in 2018, where it was about 60, 70 people died during Thanksgiving. And there was a, about a dozen who died also this time around. And those are things that you kind of want to get to before it actually hits the customer. So if you can demonstrate that you are are doing what's supposed to be, or if you know, let's say, I got a batch, and you're able to trace that batch back to the farmer which sold it to you, that same information can be also used to look at any other batch that he might have sold to other people, or where those batches are in the system. Did you already process some of them and they've gone to the store and pretty quickly you can start pulling them back. So it's this is more for the food uh, safety aspect, but it's very important uh, when we look at how much food is actually being moved around. It became very obvious at the beginning of the pandemic, mostly when we look at the U.S., uh, all you know like let's say the food which was go, supposed to go to the school didn't have a place to go, so now you had a f- you were having food being thrown away, milk being um, run down the drain, while in other parts we had we had people who were suffering from food insecurity. the us actually published at one point around Thanksgiving six out of ten people, so sixty percent of the population was food insecure, and that's scary. Um, I would be very interested to see in the coming years the um, effect that this may have had in some children, which became kind of malnourished because the parents could no longer work, could no longer make money, which therefore meant that the kids did not get all the nutrients that they wanted or needed, and the other part is that you couldn't go and pick up food from that easily from the the food centers. So I, I think this last year and a half, we we only are at the tip of the damage that he has it has created to not only our psyche but also our physical being.
0: So true. You were sharing with us that while you have a background in financial services, that aspect of your company did not come until later when you had that pivotal moment. I didn't dare.
1: (laughs) I, I knew that through traceability, you were creating value. But what happens is that a lot of time, I look at what provenance was doing. So provenance was to me, Uh, an amazing project. Uh, This was with um, Jessie Baker and she did the salmon uh, in Indonesia as part of her thesis and put that on the blockchain. Now, what she put on the blockchain was mostly the hashes. And for me, I then started looking, I said, well, what's missing with this is really the interaction of Um, digital identity so the persons who are touching uh, who are part of this chain need to be um, identified and then also the other piece is that we need to make sure that um, the flow of you know the value is given back to the individual and when I was thinking about it was more sort of like them being able to have access to uh, making loans, um, being able to have access to sell to uh, the co-op, but not daring to think that they could actually be more in charge of their destiny in terms of uh, going for market pricing. And that I would, you know, I thought the, the bank would be more, the role of the bank would be more to actually provide the loan, not provide the payment back. And when this happened with the World Bank and Haiti, that they said, Well, we want the payment back. And here's a list of the banks that you can go after and tell them you want them to work with you. It was uplifting because it was what made sense. But as a blockchain, solution, um, a lot of people tend to think that, well, because you're blockchain, you're trying to do a token. And I was always very clear that there was not going to be any tokenization. Well, any tokenization where the tokenization was the mechanism to pay the farmer or the producer, because to me, that individual is already has lots of risk, has risk to market, has risk to... um, basically the financial services, to the weather. So why would I add another risk, which was a token that I had to keep up? So give them their cash. But what I found was that um, you can, and we did play with this, you can look at digitization of the asset. So the asset is digitized, you're tokenizing it. But now you can create asset pools the same way those are already being done in regular financial markets. But you now can start taking uh, commodities which are not normally tracked. You know, we track things like coffee, cocoa, because they're so uh, precious in ways. Um, And we do potatoes also, and sometimes the beef. But... We don't do anything like um, fruits uh, and certain, um, like let's say, lettuce and things like that. We we crave it in some places and it's been grown everywhere in the world to be able to have it at our table. So why couldn't we create these asset pools that allow people to then invest into the smallholder farmers? So really of bringing financial um, accessibility to these individuals. Because if we look at the uh, agricultural investment, it's either in the form of aid or it sits in mega farms or indoor farms at very, very high, you know, so you'll get those vertical farms getting very big investment but you won't see a small farmer get the same investment. So now, and why is that? It's because the big one, they know what the risks are and how they are managing versus the reason why the small guy doesn't get it is because you don't know how he's managing. But if you can incentivize him by giving him that access to capital and you're also allowing either the investor to provide that investment uh, because he wants to feel that he's doing good or has actual return because it doesn't have to be, it's not a donation. It is an investment. You then can create, uh, you can underwrite, you can then start having intrinsically all the insurance which are needed. Because I think one of the biggest challenge in agriculture is when you have a natural disaster, how does that person get back to productivity? We find usually that it takes them seven years to get back to productivity because they have so many debt and also to rebuild what they have takes a lot of money. So now imagine that you put the insurance, the micro-insurance in there and you also provide them with the working capital that allows them to be successful. So I think that then you should be looking at a much faster rehabilitation of the production line.
0: Having become so acquainted with farmers, the supply chain that gives us the food that affects our, as you said, physical being so much, how has this influenced the way that you consume and live every day in your life?
1: I'm a pack rat. I go to a restaurant. I don't finish everything. <laughs> I sit pack it to go. If I can't eat it, I will make sure, you know, many a time I'm traveling places where there are people who want, I'll give it, but I don't waste food. Uh, I have, I have never been a food waster, but now I revere food. Um, also, I think that I have also learned a lot more in terms of, you No, know, I'm not one of those people who is like, oh, we need to go back to Um, the old ways I do think that regenerative is happening in smallholder farmers they're just not getting rewarded for doing that so I am of the view that of telling people now put your money where your mouth is you know stop saying oh you know I'm on the I'm helping blah 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 when you're not helping so recognize I have actually though found that in reality most of us are price sensitive. We may not wish to be, but we're price sensitive and we want to know when we're paying for something more that we're actually getting that organic food that we say we're paying for. Unfortunately, there's a lot of fraud that happens with people doing the switcheroo. I think the last big one was the blueberries, which were supposed to come from Chile, organic, but actually they came from China and were labeled as coming in from Chile. So those kind of things, when you hear them in the news, you go, oh, do I really want to? And as such, I've become more to where I'm an advocate for that kind of, you know, like understanding what is exactly happening and how to bring in value to the person but I also am not against GMOs because not all GMOs are GMOs. We call them GMOs, but there is like, let's say, um, corn, which has been genetically modified in order to put vaccination in there, fortifiers, so that you don't have to give those vaccination to the population, but they get the immunity which is necessary. So the scientist in me sometimes doesn't agree with the activist in, uh, <laughs> in really thinking about how, how to go, but I've always loved food and that's why I went into the agricultural space and I like to say, if you eat food, you are part of agriculture.
0: Absolutely. What sort of food is on your mind right now?
1: Do you know what I really want? What? If I could snap my fingers, I'd be in Shanghai or in Shenzhen, being able to have noodles mm. and seafood and kanji. Oh, I am like dying. I'll even take Hong Kong at this point. I am dying for proper proper Chinese food with you know like the, the 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 but also presented in a way that you get in China. I think that if one has an opportunity to actually do a banquet or a dinner party in China it's amazing. The my favorite was in Hangzhou they served us this sashimi fish it was amazing because you knew the fish had just died and it was so good. And then when we finished, they came in and took the carcass and they made congee with it. I was in seven heaven. And my favorite thing is like, you know, to make me really happy is in the morning to have noodles. So now when I go to New York, I buy the Korean noodles and I just stash them with me. And that's been my saving grace in Kinshasa because I can't find, I did find, I I must admit, I did find a great um, restaurant, but it is super, super expensive. So I feel bad asking to go there, but they have, the chef made me, I was like, "Uh, filet? No, 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 no. I want my fish with the bones. (laughs) And so he made me grilled fish it was a prompted fish it was so good but and then it was with like the proper Japanese so I love Asian food (laughs) my my old boss at Hewlett Packard said to me I'm sure in a former life you must have been Chinese (laughs) like okay (laughs) so that's what I'm craving and then if I have to have the usual I'll have my mother make me uh, like, I can't wait till I get to New York and I'm going to make her make me the Haitian yellow soup, which is, uh, we call it soup Jérôme. So it's a pumpkin scoop, soup, which has everything and almost a kitchen sink in there. It has, pe- uh, what's it called, macaronis, it has uh, potatoes, it has pumpkin, it has meat, <laughs> it has cabbage, it has onion, has radishes, you name it, it's in there. But it's absolutely delicious and it's velvety, and uh, we usually have it in in Haiti. They have it for the first of the year, and apparently it was because this was the special food, uh, and the slave, and you know you have such good pieces of meat in there, and for the slaves that was like um, the richest thing that you could have to celebrate your independence.
0: It is abundantly clear that. You love food and the history, culture around food. Yeah,
1: I do. I, I, I find it fascinating. And I actually like better when I travel to be with the locals and to really get to taste. So my stomach is not always happy with me. But I'm like, hey... Your stomach may not be happy, but taste buds were really happy until you got mad. (laughs) So as long as uh, it doesn't kill me, and I'm willing to try, you know, I have been in Heilongjiang and had the uh, silkworms, uh, the grilled uh, silkworms, and I tried it once and I was like, uh, not really doing anything for me, so I don't see any reason to try it again. Uh, but not too exotic in my taste. I'm more about the different um, spices and, you know, like the joy of the different sensation that you get in your mouth as you're putting the food in.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Eating is a whole experience that touches the five senses. Yes. Oh, yes. And I think, you know,
1: I, I actually have been saying to people that what I have disliked most about the last year, last year and a half, has been, yes, I've met a lot of people, but my senses, I kept trying to think which sense was actually why I wasn't, because you see, you hear, you, you kind of feel, you know, not, not in terms of physical feel, but you feel the person. But I said, the part that's missing is we're not smelling the person. So unless Zoom and Teams and all these people figure a way to bring in that sensation of smell, it's like the dogs, you know, they don't accept unless they start smelling each other. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, we probably didn't realize that we were doing that. But I think the smell, taste, sensation is what's missing in this whole interaction and why, you know, you get tired because the meetings, the, the the number of meetings or the length of the meetings is no different than what they were in the office. Maybe for some people who didn't have to go to meetings, now they have to go to meetings. But for me, I was used to spending seven hours going back to back to meetings and then basically having time to crash in the evening to, to catch up. But... Uh, now it's just you get tired of them because you you feel distant from the person you're not really sensing them in the same room as you.
0: If anybody from Zoom or Microsoft is listening, this is the next feature <laughs> we're <work> on.
1: Yes, <laughs> we should tell Eric that because they were very proud uh, to announce that now they have through Zoom where. You, they've kind of copied a bit what Teams was doing, which you could put people in different, uh, like let's say arena, like, uh, like uh, you put them in a classroom setting or benches. Uh, so Zoom is also doing that uh, now. So maybe Eric Young can figure out how to send us these senses so that our nostrils will also get picked up at the same time.
0: <laughs> yes, straight away. We'll get Eric on it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Oh, he does follow me on on LinkedIn, on uh, Twitter, so maybe I'll ping him on there once we post this. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we started because I I actually have been using Zoom for almost ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I yeah I uncovered it when it was just at the beginning, and for me I was like, wow. One of the things that people don't understand, is you don't need to download the software, just find the number and dial the number in. So, uh, Which wasn't something that you could do previously with um, the, uh, what's it called, the one from Cisco, uh, which is uh, WebEx. WebEx doesn't allow you to dial, it allows you to dial in, but it doesn't allow you to make your whole thing audio. Which Zoom does. So when I uncovered that, I was like, this is great. And also when working at the time I was working with India and Africa, and it was so much easier because all they had to do is get on the internet and they could connect. So it's been um, so it was very funny when I did my started leadership program in 1617. I also ended up getting a job in Ireland, and I said, guys, I can't come in every other Monday to spend, to be until 9 o'clock in London and then have to go back. So I said, let's use my Zoom uh, meeting, because Skype was terrible at the time. Skype, you would be doing a call, things would drop, people didn't know, and so... Funny enough, I, the next, I said, to, so it worked. A lot of people from my class also started using that. And the next year I gave them a, an account. So it's 2017, 2018. And then 2019, they said, we're not doing this anymore. And then 2020 came in, they had to go get their Zoom account because nobody could come to class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Okay you had it for free, I was paying it for you for a year, and you didn't want to use it anymore. But uh, they ended up having to do everything remotely. Um, So it's, it's really changed the way people perceive, and also the effort that one has to do to be able to connect. For me, it wasn't new because I've been used to working for so many years with distributed teams. And uh, when I was at Hewlett Packard, you know, there were days where you were on a call at 11 o'clock at night so that the team in uh, London could get in at uh, 8 o'clock to get on the call. And so we would rotate. And so I've always been used to where you call whatever it's needed and you're doing it with colleagues which are far across the world and you just do what's necessary. So didn't feel different about it. Where I felt different was really being told, you cannot move, drove my husband crazy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What about the past year and a half has made you grateful?
1: I am grateful for, and I have to say it, for the love my husband has of me, even though I put him through hell. I'm grateful that those in my family which got sick, nothing, you know, they were not well. My mom and her husband caught COVID in April last year, and my niece and nephew caught it in uh, February, and they all survived. And so I think that I've been grateful for family, for friends, and I have to say the Orgonauts also because um, with these like there's seven of us with these individuals it was an opportunity every month to at the beginning it was every two weeks but every month to actually have somebody to share with who was feeling or having the same kind of challenges you were having Uh, between April and May I was supposed to go to the Middle East, go to Africa, go to the Caribbean, then go to the U.S., go to Haiti, go to Canada. I was going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And all of a sudden, it it didn't matter because nothing was going to happen and everything had to be now remote. I was so used to not being at home all the time and so used to being on the move that I had to readjust myself, and part of that has been where my husband's expectation, and I I don't blame him because he can't cook for nothing, was that I would make the meals, and so that became sort of the routine of how do I break my day to go make sure that I put something for us to have for lunch or for dinner, which meant there was a few (laughs) well-burnt Pieces, I think. I think at one point I, I basically said, "Okay, I'm going to stop because I'm burning too much chicken." <laughs> but um, it's charred. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a new color, honey. It's black. It tastes a little bit No, just scrape it off. <laughs> no, but um, it, it also. We live in a farm in Jersey, so it was great that. He was grateful that we had moved there because if we had been somewhere else, he wouldn't have had um, the hobby. And basically every day he was coming in with something else or would come in and say, would you like me to go get you some shard? Would you like me to get you some spinach? Would you like me to? <laughs> so really started um, experimenting with my cooking, which was fun also. And I, I love cooking. And it was interesting to be able to do different things with vegetables, which for me wasn't something I, was, I had been brought up with. So um, I started making, I realized I didn't have any Indian spices, ordered them online and started making all kinds of curries. And it was really good. He ate all of them.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah
0: we are grateful for you, too, for everything that you're doing to help local farmers be able to access the value that they're creating for everything you do extracurricularly to support women's voices. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. It is my pleasure. And I, I think that I've always said, uh, pay it forward. I must say, this is probably what I'm grateful for um, more this year, this past year, could have broken me uh, because there were so many things that didn't seem to be going the right way. But anytime I needed support or I needed help or I needed a divine intervention, she took care of it. Because I like to think sometimes God is a woman. And um, it really, you know... It really helped me see the way and to sort of navigate through the waves that there are. And uh, part of that has also been sort of working in trying to make sure that we can look to get more women in technology. I don't say it in blockchain, I say in technology. And also to get them to find their voices, to be able to demand and expect what their dues are and that is uh, very much key for us to be able to, as women, uh, be successful. I was very lucky that my mom always um, told me to understand the value of myself and not to let anybody else devalue me. And I think it's important to make sure that young women or all women understand what they are and their value and if you don't know something you we are so lucky today you can learn just about anything through uh, a google search
0: what a beautiful relationship it sounds like you have with your mom who nourishes you not only with her soup but also with this life wisdom
1: yeah you should see uh while i've been here she's been sending me every day she sends me either images or she sends me um, little messages telling me she loves me and she can't wait to see me. So it's really cool. You know, I mean, um, at my age you would think, ah, but it's great to have. And we know we're, we're about to come into the U S with mother's day. Uh, I think it's just passed in in the UK, but uh, American mother's day is this weekend. I had hoped to be with her, but She also has been taught, we always mess up with her, that we celebrate uh, the Haitian Mother Day, which is at the end of the month. So I might actually surprise her this year and send her flowers so she gets them on Sunday. Every day is Mother's Day. (laughs) That's the reality of it. Because when, and if we look at what has happened with the pandemic, it's been women, and mostly women with children, which have, um, I don't want to say suffered, which have been disadvantaged the most because they're the one who have had to provide the care to the child. And at the end of the day, you know, as a mother, you can't just walk away from your child.
0: What would you say is one tangible action that folks listening can do to help in this cause that you're in to promote women in technology? really
1: encouraging if you happen to be in technology is encouraging women that you may know who have the aptitude to look at it and also I think it's for me I think it's one of the best you know if you you don't need to be in an office to be a developer if that's what you choose to do and even with being a product manager you don't need to be in, in an office But you do need, and you you also have flexibility with your hours. You may have to uh, agree to certain times and be available for those times. But in reality, you can be both a great parent, uh, spouse, and also a great earner because technology pays well. So I'd say it's really, and today... Anything you do, if you don't know technology, you're not going to succeed because it is intrinsic to everything. And that can be as simple as putting up a Facebook page and understanding how to post your information so that you get the customer attraction uh, that you want. So to me, it's really nurturing women, uh, giving them the opportunities to uh, participate learn. You know, I'm so grateful for the, um, the relationship and collaboration that we've been running with Consensus Academy, where they're providing women in Africa and in Haiti with scholarships to women who would normally not be able to attend these boot camp, giving them the opportunity to participate. And that's really what has to be done, is paying it forward and uh, nurturing those who are coming from behind and letting them know that it is not impossible, but possible.
0: It is possible. Going back to your ability to imagine the possible. Yes. Thank you so much for the stories and experiences that you have shared with us today. For people who would like to keep up with you, where would you recommend that they go? So I
1: am a true American, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and it, Geneviève Léveillé. Uh, and also the company is at AgriLedger on everything. And I'm hoping by, hopefully by the end of June, we will have a TikTok account up and running. I can't wait. <laughs> That's the one. I, <laughs> <laughs> we're looking to do a campaign. So watch the space.
0: Oh, I will be watching. Thank you. I learned so much. I learned about the Congo, Haitian yellow soup, and Genevieve's passion to use technology to help create financial accessibility. Thank you for listening. As always, visit thrivingroom.substack.com to see complimentary resources. See you next time.